As with me, as we go to the Lord once again to ask the, his favor on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to see Jesus exalted. We need him. We confess that he is the reason that you created all things. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. In him, all things exist and hold together. So we pray that your spirit would come upon us now to exalt Jesus. May we see him as the Lord of all time. May we submit to him. May we delight in him. Give us greater understanding and love for him. Speak your word now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Every time I flip a light switch... Every time I drive a car, I am enjoying something I do not fully understand. That is like the understatement of the century. I don't get how anything works. I'm not mechanical. I'm not handy. I can't fix anything. I don't understand how it works. It just works, and I'm really grateful that it works. And I don't feel like I have to understand how stuff works to use it. I don't feel like I'm cheating by driving a car that I don't understand how it works. I don't feel like I'm cheating to turn on a light when I don't know how does that electricity work for me. I just use it, and I thank God for it. We could multiply example after example of things that we gratefully enjoy without fully understanding how or why they work. But when it comes to life in this world, we often have a hard time enjoying it Precisely because we don't understand life all the way down to the bottom. We don't get how it works. And sometimes that takes the enjoyment out of life for us. Yet when we turn to Ecclesiastes 3, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 3, Scripture counsels us anyway to enjoy life gratefully, even though we can't understand it thoroughly. That's the preacher's counsel to us in Ecclesiastes 3. We should enjoy life gratefully, even though we cannot understand it thoroughly. We're going to read the whole passage in a minute, but I'm just going to summarize it real quick for us now. There's a time for everything, both positive and negative both welcome and unwelcome. And God is the one who determines those times. And he has determined what is appropriate for us to do in those times. Yet no matter how hard we try, we cannot change those times. We often cannot anticipate when those times are going to come in order that we could prepare for them. We cannot figure out all God is doing in those times when we're in them. Though we have a sense of his eternal purposes, but we can't know how all of his works in time relate to eternity either. We can't stop him from doing his will. God has set it up all this way so that we will feel our vulnerability and our accountability to him. 
But fearing him doesn't mean not enjoying this life. We can accept our life and our work as good gifts from his good hand, and we can enjoy them for what they are with gratitude to the one who gave them. What makes this different than hedonism, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is reverence towards God that accepts and acknowledges that I am not the God of my life. God. God is the God of the life He gave me, of all of life. And He even allows human wickedness so that we know what we really are. God will judge wickedness in His time, but He will have us understand that we are mere creatures even though we have the rationality to reflect on our creatureliness in a way that a giraffe does not. But we die, just like animals die. Death reminds us we are not gods. We are creatures of the one true God. And that distinction puts life into perspective, and it enables us to enjoy life, all of life, all the times of life, gratefully, even though we can't understand life or God's purposes in it thoroughly. These are the things that Kohelet, the preacher, the observer of life, wants us to get through our heads and hearts before it's too late. So let's follow along as I read out loud for us Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 22. For everything there is a season... And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down. A time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter under the, in, for, and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and Man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? 
So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So we should enjoy life gratefully, even though we cannot understand it thoroughly. The first lesson that we need to learn if we're going to obey that counsel is that God is the one who gives us the symmetry of the seasons. God gives us the symmetry of the seasons in verses 1 through 8. The God-givenness of the times and seasons in verses 1 through 8 is clear from verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful or appropriate, fitting, in its time. God's the one who is bringing about these times in verses 1 through 8. God has made reality like that. God gives each of these seasons. There's a season for everything, not because of fate or karma or destiny. There's a season for everything because the God of Scripture is Lord of seasons. He's sovereign over those seasons. He's the one who brings them. And what this means for people is that we are not in control of the timing of any of these times. You don't get to say, I don't get to say when it's time for me to lose. I mean, if it were were to me, there would never be a time for me to lose anything. I would never lose. It's not up to me. We don't choose when these times arrive any more than we choose when summer arrives. I would like to see summer arrive a lot quicker in Chicagoland. But it doesn't. I'm not in control of that. So These times are not appointments that we make. They're seasons that arrive without our permission. We don't get to choose when we were born or when we die. The God of eternity... He is the Lord of times. Again, if it were up to us, we would never pluck up what we ourselves planted. We'd simply let it grow. We'd never weep. We would always laugh. That part about casting and gathering stones is probably a reference to war. Enemies would throw stones on farm fields to ruin crops and cause famines. The gathering of stones then would often mark the end of wars and a new agricultural start. Again, we don't choose when we lose things. Losing just happens to us. Time to tear is probably a time of mourning. Tearing your clothes was a sign of sadness. Sewing them back together then was probably an indication that you were done mourning and it was time to move on with life. When it says there's a time to hate, that's not sanctioning hatred of people or against people. It's a hatred of all God hates. Sin, unrighteousness, corruption, all that opposes God and all that God loves. It's also a relative hatred. In other words, your love for God in Christ, your love for His Word, His purposes and Scripture should make your love for other people and things look like hatred. And there's a time when that becomes very clear and appropriate. Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sometimes it's time for you to act like that towards Jesus and towards others. Sometimes it's time for your love for Jesus and His gospel to make your love for everything and everyone else look like hate. Luke 16, 14, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
There's even a time for war. The Bible is not pacifist. There's a time when a nation can and should wage war against other nations to protect and defend the innocent, to prevent unjust aggression, to punish the transgression of national borders or international treaties. Now, this whole list of times is not intended to be exhaustive. It's not intended to list every single kind of time there is, but it is supposed to be representative. There's a time for everything that happens in life. Now, that's not to say that there's a time for sin, but there is a time for all that must happen in life, whether welcome or unwelcome, positive or negative. In fact, there's a God-given symmetry, a balance of these times. For every positive, you'll notice, there's a negative, and vice versa. For every negative, there's a positive. There are 14 pairs of times here, each pair made up of corresponding positive and negative counterparts. For every time, there's an appropriate human action to take in that time. Which would not be fitting outside that time or in its opposite time. Life and death, sorrow and joy, killing and healing, getting and losing, peace and conflict. There's time for all of it. And God's the one who brings about each one of those times. So at the broadest level, verses 1 to 8 teach us that you should not despair in the bad or unwelcome times. You can't despair in the bad and unwelcome times. Even the Christian has to take the bad with the good. Life is not always in a season of giving life. There's a season of death and a time for sorrow and loss and conflict in a sin-bitten world. And we can't change that. There's a time for plucking up what you yourself planted. And that's not harvest time. That's failure. It's starting over. It's recognizing that something has worn out its course. It's time to cut bait on some project that you thought would be fruitful. Some job, some endeavor, some hope, some sweetness, maybe even some relationship. has run its course, run out of time, and it's now time to clear the deck and make room for something else. You can't let these seasons of sorrow, of endings, of conflict and death sour you on life. This is just how it is. There's a time for good things, a time for good times to come and to end. But we shouldn't be confused or despairing when it comes time to die or to pluck up or to tear or to break down. Because that season Two is from God, and He has His purposes for it in our lives. It's counterintuitive, but what you plant cannot stay planted forever. Whether it's your work, your location, your relationships, a habit that needs to end. But we should also not make too much of the good times. That's what Kohelet did in chapter 2. We'll remember from last week, he tried to get too much out of Productivity, prosperity, luxury, and legacy. He tried to build his own sense of identity on his positive accomplishments, the enjoyment of them in the good times. But nothing in time can fill the void of eternity in your heart, as we'll see. Life is not exclusively any one of these things or pairs of things. Any one of these times or pairs of times. 
And to expect it to be so is only going to sink you further into a sense of life's senselessness. For each element of each pair in verses 1 to 8, there comes a moment when you say, it's time. It's time for this. And for each element of each pair in verse 8, 1 through 8, there comes a moment when you say, the time is over for that. For each thing, what makes the action appropriate is the time, the context, the season, the moment. All these events, all these emotions, all these actions and situations have their time and purpose in life. Each element of each pair has its time. And to deny that will only disillusion you further. Now again, none of this means that there's ever a time to sin. It's never time to sin. What he's saying is that in the course of this life, there's a time for events to happen to us that fit into all these categories, both welcome and unwelcome, desirable and undesirable, and each event that happens in its time calls for a response from us that's also appropriate. And we're not in control of when those times come. What this paragraph also means is that you can't overread any part of Ecclesiastes. There's a time to laugh. Even though Kohelet just said in chapter 2, verse 2, laughter is madness. And it's not always appropriate. Yet there's still a time when all you can do is laugh. There's a time to pluck up, but you plant it as well. So while Kohelet advises you elsewhere to rejoice in all your work, sometimes you've got to undo what you just did. There's a time to lament life's absurdities, kind of like Kohelet is doing right now in the book of Ecclesiastes. But nobody can mourn forever, and God doesn't expect you to. Yet these times, as important as they are, are not the most important times we can recognize. Ask yourself, how does this paragraph about all these times testify to Jesus in the gospel? Well, Jesus' incarnation and public ministry happened at the right time. Paul said in Galatians 4, In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Himself said as much in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. You see there how Jesus knew what time it was on God's timetable and commanded us as to how to respond to that time. Luke 4.19, Jesus recognized from Isaiah 61 that it was time to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' death happened at the right time. Jesus saw it coming ahead of time when He said in the high priestly prayer of John 17, Father, the hour has come. Paul said in Romans 5, 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, 1 Timothy 2, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And now, now, 
is the time of salvation through repentance and faith towards Jesus. Now is the time for that. There were times in the Old Testament when God was providing a window of opportunity for his people to seek his forgiveness for their sins. Hosea 10, 12. So sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground for it is the time to seek the Lord. That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And right now, in this whole time between Jesus' resurrection and his return, we are called to repent. We're called to turn from our sins towards faith in Christ. And we are called to call other people to turn from their sins to trust in Christ. Romans 13, 11, You know the time. This is a time you can know. You should know. But the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's the time you know. Paul said of God in 2 Corinthians 6.2, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. But Paul applies that favorable time to our time. Behold, now is the favorable time, Paul says. Behold, now, now is the day of salvation. That is the most important time of all. The favorable time of salvation from guilt and pollution, from the penalty and power of our sins. Now is that time. And we know that from Scripture. Repentance from our own sin and encouraging others to repent of theirs is the way we make the best use of the time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5. If you're under the sound of this sermon, now is the time for you to turn away from your sins and to trust in Jesus. There may well be no more favorable time for you to repent than right now. You know this. You've experienced this, I'm sure. Where you sense in your heart, God is giving me a window. He's giving me strength against this temptation right now. And I better not waste this because usually I feel weaker against this temptation than I do right now. But God is giving me extra strength, extra grace, extra time, extra energy to fight this sin, and I'd better make the most of it while I can. That's right now. And Jesus' second coming is going to happen at the right time. But that time is one that no one knows. Paul said, 1 Timothy 6, 13 to 15, we should keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. Jesus will come back at the right time. You may feel right now that he's waiting too late, that the time for his return has passed. That is not true. He will return. He will be shown 
to be the judge of all the earth at the right time. And that time is near. So Jesus commands us in Mark 13, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And yet for those who are turning from their sins and trusting in Christ, Peter says, we are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The great mystery of the times, though, is that we don't understand them as God does, and that is by His design. We don't understand the times like God does. That brings us to our second lesson. God gives us an asymmetry of understanding. He gives us an asymmetry of understanding. He creates and brings the symmetry of the times, good and bad, favorable and unfavorable, welcome and unwelcome, but He gives us an asymmetry of understanding those times. In other words, we don't get it. There's a difference between God's understanding of the times and our understanding of the times. That's part of the point of the question in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Now, Kohelet, the observer of reality, has asked this question already in chapter 1, verse 3. But here, it comes to us with a little different nuance because of the context. Looking back on the seasons in verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3, we can rack our brains all we want and still not understand which exact season we're in. Or how those seasons might overlap. Or how we should respond to them. And looking forward to chapters, chapter 3, verses 9 to 15... What gain do we get in understanding God's work in time from all of our racking our brains and all of our work and trying to understand what He's doing? It's mental work that He's talking about here. Can we really understand what God is doing in history from beginning to end? Can we really say, for instance, when exactly God is judging a nation? Can you really be confident about that? Look at verses 10 and 11. God is the one who made everything. In verses 1 through 8, beautiful or fitting in its time. He gave the symmetry, the symmetry of those seasons. God's the one who did that. But He also gave us a limited sense that there is an eternal meaning to history. But He doesn't give us unlimited access to what He's doing or what that means. We can see from looking at life, there's a time for everything. But we can't know exactly what God is doing in each season, and we can't seem to put the seasons all together in a way that takes the mystery out of history. We aren't always even sure what season we're in. Not all of our analyzing and working can give us the kind of understanding of the times that we sense is out there to be had. But when we grasp for it, it's like chasing the wind. And on the flip side, in verses 14 to 15, God gains nothing from our work either. So all our work in trying to understand the times doesn't seem to get us anywhere, God's always 
an infinite number of steps ahead of us, we have this sense of eternity in our hearts. We sense time means something. God's doing something great. And yet, I'm not exactly sure all the time what exactly it is that He's doing. And on the other side of the equation, God gains nothing from our work either. I can't add or subtract to anything that He has done. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. In context of his question from verse 9, what gain does a man have from all his toil? Verse 14 means nothing can be added to God's work or taken away from God's work by man's work. So not only does man have no real gain from his own work in trying to understand all of God's purposes from beginning to end, God also has no real gain or loss from our work either. And so this is Kohelet's way of agreeing with Isaiah 40, verses 7 to 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the peoples are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see how Kohelet, the observer of reality in Ecclesiastes, is intensifying the problem of our work and our effort at understanding God's ways in the world. And in His providence, there are so many things that we cannot do or understand just by trying harder. God's work, by contrast, is not subject to the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life, the seasons of life. We have to pluck up what we planted, but whatever God intends and desires, He does. And God's work achieves His eternal purposes every time. And in that situation, our limited human understanding of time and God's purposes in time, we do well simply to enjoy our work and its pleasures, even though our work in time cannot give us a full understanding of God's work in time. No matter how we rack our brains, no matter how much science we discover, no matter how much we read our Bibles and pray, It's not that we should quit working to understand. It's not that we should quit reading our Bibles and praying. It's not that we should quit our jobs. It's that we should recognize the limits of our understanding and that we should fear God in the midst of all of our work. And when we come up against our finite understanding, our limitations, we shouldn't resent God for those, but we should recognize our humanity, our limitedness, our fallenness, and God's eternity and His superiority to us and His all-knowingness. We should respect Him for that. It's not our work that will gain us an understanding of the times. It's Jesus' work that gives us a greater understanding. And that even with our remaining limitations, what we can know today of God's ultimate scheme for history is way more than Kohelet could have known in his time. And it ultimately boils down to the person and work of Jesus in Ephesians 1.10 as a plan for the fullness of time. Jesus is the plan. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite 
all of time and reality in Jesus. That's what you know that Kohelet could not have known. Jesus is God's scheme for the fullness of all time. Somehow, in a way we don't understand, cannot ultimately bring to pass simply by our work, God Himself will unite all things and all times in Jesus Christ. And that is why you must be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ before time ends. And knowing Christ, knowing Christ is enough for us to know when we wish we knew more. We wish we knew more very often. But because we know Christ, we know God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus. In verse 14, God has done it so that people fear before Him. Again, in context, the it that God has done is probably putting eternity in our hearts yet so that we can't figure out what He's done in the mystery of history. He did that. He put eternity into you to raise questions in your mind about the meaning of history and how it relates to eternity so that you would fear Him. So that you would know you don't know everything like God knows everything. He's left you with questions on purpose. So that you'll fear Him. He enables us to realize that there is something else, something higher, bigger going on. But He doesn't enable us to fully understand His purposes in the seasons of time. This It that God has done is also likely the fact that none of our work adds to or takes away from Him or His works. And He sets it up like that so that we will take Him seriously. So that we'll hold Him in awe. So that we'll realize that He always has the upper hand over us. So that we will know we cannot outmaneuver him. We cannot outsmart him or outthink him or outdiscover him. And so that we will know that we are accountable to him, that we are vulnerable to him, that we are dependent on him, and that we are subordinate to him. You ever meet someone who you feel like, that, that guy, that woman always seems to know more than I know about almost anything that we're talking about. We all have somebody like that, right? At work, in your neighborhood, there's always some person that you're like, man, I can't ever get one in on him. And you start to feel like, you almost know me better than I know me. I'm not sure I'm going to talk to you anymore. I'm a little uncomfortable around you. God has that in spades over you, eternally, infinitely. There's a reason he has taken that for himself and kept it to himself over you so that you will fear him, so that you will treat him as God. You recognize him. This is how Kohelet's counsel is different than just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He's not impersonating a hedonist. 
He's already counseling the fear of the Lord, which restrains our pleasures and anticipates the end of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments. Be joyful and don't let your ignorance of life steal your joy in your work and your family and the simple pleasures of life because those are God's good gifts to us and we should show him our gratitude. All that is true. And while you're enjoying this life, fear God. Take him seriously. If you're going to enjoy this life, you have to enjoy it as a gift from his hand, not as something that you earned out from under his goodness or authority. Part of fearing God is trusting him to care for what our work cannot provide. That's the point of verse 15. It's stated in kind of a mysterious way, but the point is that God will take care of everything that feels to us like striving after the wind. God will take care of all that. God will take care of whatever it is that we cannot find out in verse 11 simply from our own working and racking of our own brains. Part of fearing God is acknowledging that He has left some things hidden in Himself and in His own counsels. Maybe even some things about your own life that you don't understand that you wish weren't true. But we have to admit that we cannot simply work and study our way to a complete understanding of all of God's ways in time and in the different times. We can know a lot simply by studying Scripture. We should study Scripture. God has revealed Himself in His Word. We should maximize our knowledge of it. But even when we do that, there are still some things that we just can't know. We cannot know what God has done from beginning to end. God alone knows the times and even the future. I mean, He stakes His own divinity on it in Isaiah 46. I am God. I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Well, God, what would it be to be like you? He tells you. I am God. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. That's what makes me God. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm going to do in the end, and I knew what I was going to do in the end when I began it. And you don't know, but I know. No other God knows or can know. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, even though you cannot accomplish all of yours. And your purposes will not trump my purposes, God says. The disciples asked the risen Christ in Acts 1, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And remember what Jesus said to them? It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. You see, even the hand-picked apostles of Jesus Himself could not know the times God had appointed. They could not unlock the full mystery of history. But Jesus would make sure that when those times came, they would be able to respond appropriately. And come to think of it, isn't that the purpose of Revelation 5, the scroll? 
Nobody could open the scroll. John's weeping. Who's going to open the scroll? Who's going to open the book of history to show us the meaning and significance of everything that happened? Who's going to bring it all to culmination? There was no one until the angel tapped John on the shoulder and said, Hey, 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 hey. Don't worry. The Lamb of God can open the scroll. He will open it. He knows. He has power. He will make sense of all of it. He will bring it to its righteous conclusion and culmination. The time Jesus does expect us to recognize, though, is the time of his own first coming as Messiah because it was prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. That's why when the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign of his divinity, he replied to them in Matthew 16, When it is evening, you say, It's going to be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. Red in the morning, sailor's warning. Red at night, sailor's delight. You know that, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You know when it's time to go fishing by looking at the sky, but you're looking at the Son of Man right in the face, and you don't know who I am. You don't know what time it is when I'm doing all these miracles, all these healings, all these exorcisms, and you don't know what time it is. You should have known. They were prophesied. Jesus himself in his own divine humanity was a clear sign that they refused to recognize. As a result, they didn't repent of their own self-righteousness and sin and the penalty of their refusal to repent was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Luke 19, they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Hey, if you're looking for a sign of what's true in time and eternity, Jesus is your sign. His miracles are your sign. His death is your sign. His resurrection is your sign. They're not getting anything but the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale. Three days in the grave. Risen from the dead. That's your sign. That's the sign of the times. And friend, you should recognize it when Jesus is giving you time, an opportune moment to repent of your sins, to trust Him, to understand His gospel. That moment is now. That moment is now. Third, God gives us proofs of our creatureliness. God gives us proofs of our creatureliness in chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. Evil proves our humanity, and reveals our beastliness. It's kind of an embarrassing thing to admit. Failing the test of justice in verses 16 and 17 proves we are not the gods that we have tried to be. Yeah, we took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we don't know what to do with that knowledge, do we? Because we are not gods. We are creatures. We are rational beasts, but creatures nonetheless, in verse 18, and we die no differently than the animals in verse 19. That's an embarrassing thing to admit too. You're going to die like a groundhog. So am I. 
the wickedness we see in political authority, the place of justice, and in religion, the place of righteousness, invites us to think on God's judgment. You don't like what's going on in politics in Washington, D.C.? Or in other countries? You don't like what you see in the churches and the hypocrisy that's there and the leaders? That's not there in either politics or religion to excuse your self-righteous criticisms as if you are immune. No, no, no. God's telling you something about all of humanity, including yourself. This wickedness is in the place of leadership, both politically and religiously. So if this wickedness is in our leaders, what does that say about us? We're just as wicked. By allowing sinful people to do sinful things in politics and religion, God proves to humanity we are creatures at best, beasts at worst, and in any case, again, we are not God's. Friend, if you're wondering why God allows corruption in politics and religion, here's your answer in verse 18. You can take it or leave it, but this is your answer. Corruption proves something about you and me, about all of us, something that none of us really wants to admit. It proves to us, as nothing else can, that we are creatures, not God's. And in fact, our similarity to animals in our actions warns us of our similarity to the beasts in our ends. Kohelet intensifies the problem of gain in verses 19 to 21. Now it's not just that wise people have no advantage over foolish people, like it was in chapters 1 and 2, because both wise people and foolish people die. Now it's that people in general have no advantage over irrational beasts in general, because we're all mortal creatures who die. <laughs> you don't have any advantage over a groundhog. And in Kohelet's day, at that point in the history of progressive revelation of God's plan of salvation, it was not at all clear to him what happened after death, whether the human spirit went up to God or not. In other words, if men and beasts share the same death, what's to say that they don't share the same post-mortem reality as well? You'd be hard-pressed to prove an after-death difference between men and beasts based on how both men and beasts die the same way. <laughs> if I die like a groundhog, then I don't seem to have any evidence that I'm going to live after life any better than a groundhog. <laughs> From what we can see, just as observers of reality in this life, no one knows if the, breath, if the life breath of human beings leads upward while the life breath of animals goes downward into the netherworld. And here Kohelet brings us to the very heart of the gospel. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. That is almost a word-for-word -word quote from God's punishment of death on humanity from Genesis 3.19. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God created us in His own image, male and female, to know and love and serve and enjoy Him forever. It was good. We were supposed to expand the garden temple throughout all the earth and fill it with 
humanity as little living images of the living God in his cosmic temple. But instead of ruling God's kingdom under God's rule, we rebelled against him. We believed the serpent's lie, reached for the moral knowledge on our own that God had reserved for himself, and we did become like God in one way. We came to know evil, but not by obedience, by transgression, and that changed us for the worse. God warned us beforehand that if we did that, we would die. That penalty was not just physical death, but eternal conscious torment in hell under God's righteous wrath. We return to dust. We die physically. But without a sacrifice of atonement to cover our sins, our spirits descend downward to hell, not upward to heaven. But God would redeem that image of dust in Genesis 13, 16, when he promised Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And that's not a curse, that's a blessing. I will make them as numerous, as innumerable, as uncountable as dust. King Solomon acknowledged that God had fulfilled that promise. Second Chronicles 1.9, you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Good thing. And yet God's people lamented death and wondered about life beyond the grave. Job wondered in Job 17 whether his hope could join him in the dust of the grave. And he laments how both the rich and poor lie down in the dust of death in Job 21. David wondered in Psalm 30, what profit is there in my death? Will the dust praise you? Psalm 104 acknowledges that as soon as God takes away the breath of both man and beast, they die and return to their dust. What happened after death was a big question mark from much of the Old Testament. But suddenly you get the hope of resurrection in Isaiah 26, 19. Even the certainty. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, not just the dust of humiliation, in the dust of death and the grave, awake and sing for joy. Daniel 12, 2 promises that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall come awake. Isn't it wonderful how the Bible redeems that image of dust, returning to dust. And this hope of returning from the dust materialized in Jesus' resurrection to new and everlasting life. We share in Jesus' resurrection when we place our faith in His person and work to save us from the guilt and power and penalty of our sins. The Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, the son of man, the son of God. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Adam was the man of dust, made from dust, returned to dust. We share his image, his sinfulness, death and all. Yet if we are united to Christ by faith, represented by his death to sin and resurrection to new life, then we will share his image, his righteousness, resurrection and all. Ecclesiastes 
brings our mortality to light. We're going to die. And as Derek Kidner put it, we die like cattle because we fancied ourselves as gods. But death is not the final word for those who trust in the gospel of Jesus and turn from trusting in themselves to know good and evil. Only those who trust Christ can say with Paul, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friend, today could be the day that you could say that about yourself for the first time if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ. God saved us. You can be part of that us if you turn from your sin and self-reliance to trust in Jesus with us. Yet even when we are saved from the power and penalty of our sins, we still don't know everything God is doing. We want that to be the case, right? We almost expect it to be, well, I'm saved. I should know what God's doing. But I don't know everything that God's doing. We are still finite. We're still limited. And so in the context of our own serious limitations as creatures, even redeemed creatures, in the context of living out our lives here on this earth with all of our unanswered questions or all of our unresolved problems, we should rejoice in our work as a good gift from a good God to us in this good but fallen world. It may seem trivial when we compare it to our salvation in Christ and the eternity Jesus has earned for us by his sinless life, by his death as our substitute. But in relationship to this life, In the context of this limited time on this limited earth, we cannot let the elusive, perfect understanding of life be the enemy of a good enjoyment of this life. You're not going to understand everything that happens to you here. But you can't let that get you down. You can't give up. We can't let ourselves get wrapped around our own axle in the paralysis of analysis Or else before we know it, life is going to have passed us by and we will not have risked anything. We will have not done anything. We will have not enjoyed anything that God gave us. So he returns to his basic counsel in verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now again, we cannot overread that. He's not boiling life down to live in the moment. Forget about the future. He's already said we need to fear God. He will counsel us again at the end. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment in the future. He's going to remind us to remember your Creator in the days of your youth, to fear God, to keep His commandments. So Kohelet is not throwing away either history or the future. But he is saying something we need to hear. We should enjoy this life gratefully, even though we cannot understand it thoroughly. We should do that obediently, understanding our vulnerability and accountability to God. We should do that in our recognition of all that God is doing and will do in Christ to sum up all the times in Him. We should live appropriately in light of that. And we should understand our creatureliness, our limitedness, our finitude, our inferiority to God. 
But this life, enigmatic as it is, and our work, as frustrating as it is, are God's gifts to us. and We should enjoy them for what they are, not for what they're not, but just for what they are. We need to remember that these things, we need to remember these things when we're tempted to despair in the bad times, times of crying and dying, times of mourning and losing, times of tearing and breaking down. In these down times, we follow Peter's advice to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time, He may exalt us. We also need to remember these things when we're tempted to make too much of the good times, times of love and peace, times to plant and build, times to laugh and dance. This life is still to be enjoyed with gratitude as a good gift from a good God. Yet that's all it is. This life is not God. This life is not your salvation. This life is not your greatest good. It's just a good from a good God to point you upward to the giver of the gift. And every time he gives you bread, you should remember, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from his mouth. Enjoying this life is not the ultimate answer to our frustrations and problems. It's just a comfort. It's just a consolation on the way to ultimate enjoyment in the new heavens and the new earth, which Jesus will bring about when he makes all things right and new for us. But for that, we will have to wait until it's time. Until then, until then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Are you making the most of that time? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have often been sinfully, even if silently, critical of how you bring the times to pass in our own lives. We have questioned your goodness and your righteousness. We have exalted ourselves and our own reason above your revelation and above all the things that you have kept secret from us as if we knew better, as if we would have administered the times more wisely and righteously than you have administered our times. Forgive us for our arrogance against you. May we trust you with the times. And may we make sure that we ourselves are reconciled to Jesus in whom you are summing all things up in this life and in the life to come. May we make the most of these times, these favorable times for repentance and faith in Jesus. For his sake we pray. Amen.